The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. To bruise him, to kill him. And through that, to bring many offspring forth. Not physical, of course, spiritual offspring. Many offspring come from this crushing of your son. A mysterious plan, but glorious. And we give you thanks. And Father, I pray this morning, would you draw our hearts together? Would you draw my heart into this? I feel like I'm wandering in a hundred different places and I pray would you draw all of our hearts together into this text, into this reality. Cross your plan, your glory, our great good. Lift up the sun again in front of our eyes. Teach us some of how to use this in life. We thank you. We bow before you. We marvel at your wisdom. We pray, commission the Spirit to be alive and active here in our midst right now. Make the text live for us, Lord, and change us because of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. December 7th, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor, a day that will live in infamy, was a day that made Winston Churchill a happy man. Churchill, of course, was the Prime Minister of Great Britain, and by 1941, England had been engaged in the Second World War for two years already, and they had been a tough two years. In the Pacific, Japan was advancing powerfully, and in Europe, the entire continent had fallen to Nazi Germany and England stood alone. Things looked bleak for Great Britain. But upon hearing of Pearl Harbor and realizing this would surely draw the United States into the war, Churchill, as he reported later in a famous quote, said, I went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Pearl Harbor was glorious news for Winston Churchill. It meant the United States was in. With all of its vast wealth and all of its vast power, its resources, economic, material, and human, from Churchill's viewpoint, from his way of looking at it, the war was over. Surely there was much blood, toil, sweat, and tears to come yet. But the issue had been decided. And so he went to bed and slept on his encircled, embattled island. Yes, there's still a war going out there. Of course, there's still a war. There's a lot of war left. But something dramatic, something drastic has happened that has forever changed the balance of power in the world. And so while there's turmoil out there, I'm at peace in here. I can go to sleep and sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful. That's Winston Churchill. That's World War II. But in a much more dramatic, in a much more significant way, something else has happened. Some other dramatic shift in power in the world has happened at the cross. 
God has finished something at the cross. And from there on, we're pushing the ball downhill. It's over. The game's over. The war's over. In some ways, no, not yet. But it's over. It's finished. So we're going to look at today in John chapter 19. The last couple weeks, in 18 and 19, we've seen the, the arrest of Jesus and then the trial of Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor. And through those chapters, one common theme has been the supremacy of Christ over all things. Jesus is arrested. Who's in charge? Jesus is in charge at his own arrest. Declares himself to be the I Am, God come in flesh. Gives direction to the soldiers. Saves his sheep. And then when he's put on trial, he gives direction to the, uh, the high priest and then to Pilate himself. Rising above him even in, in an ironic way. We saw much irony last week as he is crowned as king, even in spite of, actually because of, the great humiliation that he goes through in Pilate's courtyard. And now this morning again, we see the king not just crowned, but enthroned. Enthroned upon the cross. Now I know that for many of us, this story is so familiar you can tell it in your sleep. And that's good. You should know this story. It should be very familiar to you. But I remind you that facts in the Bible, information in the Bible, is not just there on an FYI basis. So that you know, here's how it went. Now you're informed. Far more than that. This story is here in particular to call you to something. The facts are here to serve as fuel inside of you, to fuel a fire that burns, and as it burns more brightly and more intensely, it purifies. It burns out of you unrighteousness and draws you towards an increasingly delightful holiness, increasing fellowship with God, increasing service to Him. And if that's not happening in your life, then you have to ask, have I really understood the facts? This story is all pointing towards, here's the main point of this morning, this story is pointing out to you, calling out to you, look at Christ, pierced according to plan. God's agenda, God's will, God's plan to pierce him. Look at him now. Behold him now. So we're going to see here in the text. Let me read the passage. John chapter 19, verses 7 to 42. John 19, beginning in verse 17. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. The tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, 
They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So... Because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This week's passage, last week's passage, ended with Pilate condemning Jesus to the cross. And so he turns Jesus over to the soldiers. And what they would have done is whipped him again. This would have been a much more brutal flogging than the previous one. This actually was part of the execution. It was designed to so weaken the victim that he would die more rapidly on the cross. And surely that worked with Jesus. Proved unable to carry his cross all the way to Golgotha. And somewhere near the city gate, another man coming in from the country helped him, picked up the cross and carried it the rest of the way. We find that in other Gospels, but not here. John skips that part. Just says Jesus went out carrying his own cross, which he surely did to start. And the effect is that John again puts Jesus right in the center. Jesus as the one we're focusing on. He's the one carrying his cross. He's done that before, lifting up Jesus in front of us. But it's possible also that there's something else going on here, and I think there is. There's a hint here of something that's intended to, in our mind, make us think of some other one and only son. Some other son of promise who carried the wood to his own execution. Maybe that trips in your mind Isaac. Thinking back to the story in the Old Testament in Genesis, 
where Isaac, in a critical story that involves similar elements of, of a sacrificed son, of a substitute, God's will to kill him, there are similar echoes there. Given where he goes in the rest of this passage, I think it's likely. For whatever reason, though, he highlights Jesus as carrying his cross and going out, and eventually they reach Golgotha, where he is crucified. It explicitly says, between two criminals, one on either side, Jesus in the middle. Another echo there of Isaiah 53 in Psalm 22, where Jesus is numbered with transgressors and surrounded by evildoers while his hands and feet are pierced. John tying us back a couple times to the Old Testament. Now, the crucifixion itself is not described. It didn't need to be. Everybody knew what a crucifixion was. A criminal would be nailed to a, a cross beam that he'd carried out and then hoisted up onto the vertical member, which already be, would have been stuck in the ground. And he's really only about seven feet off the ground. He's only about like this high, just high enough to get the feet off the ground. So picture him right there. Everybody can really closely see him. And above his head, as was the custom, they wrote a placard with the charge of which the criminal had been convicted. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The idea was, you read that, look at this guy, and you say, that's what he did, this is what happened to him, better not do that. Very graphic reminder, a graphic deterrent. Pilate wrote it in three languages so that everybody walking by could read it and see. And that triggers another squabble with the high priests. See, they want him to say that this guy claimed to be the King of the Jews. Pilate says, Aha, I see an opportunity here to get at the high priests again, to get at the leaders again. So I'm going to actually say, no, no, he is your king. He is your king, and I killed him. Look. We've seen this before. That's what's going on on the human level, people squabbling with each other and trying to manipulate one another. But behind it, at another level, the effect is that Christ is hung up and declared king to all the nations in every language so that everybody can read it. See the irony working here again. He is crowned in the courtyard. He is enthroned here on the cross. It's all a big mockery, and it's more true than anybody knows. The irony of this, you've got to catch that and see the story here. The job's done. He's hanging up there to die. And the soldiers now set about dividing his possessions. And because there are five articles of clothing and four soldiers, it eventually is going to, in order to fulfill the scriptures, it's going to fall to lot, to random dice throwing, to see who gets what. Now, while there may have been hints of connections to the Old Testament before, here now John's finally explicit. And he's doing something here in this passage that we can't miss because it's really central to John's telling of the story of the cross. Here he says, this was to fulfill the scripture. Yes, sure, they're randomly throwing dice to fulfill the scripture. Fulfillment passages are a common element of this story. Do you hear them all as we read through? This was to fulfill the scripture. Repeatedly he says that. Why? Because he's trying to make a point explicitly and implicitly, I think, that this event right here that you're seeing has always been in God's agenda. It's what the whole of the scripture is pointing towards. He faces a huge stumbling block head on. He's writing to a Jewish audience and in their mind the Messiah of God and a crucified, cursed criminal, those things don't fit together. And John faces that head on and says, actually they do. The Bible's pointing towards them repeatedly. 
in lots of different ways. The Messianic king is supposed to be killed and cursed by God. Psalm 22, for starters. Clearly a reference there to what's going on in that passage. Psalm 22, in another passage we read that Jesus uttered the first words of that psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a Davidic psalm. Here, John skips to a couple other verses. In verse 16, we can read about how he was surrounded by evildoers while his hands and feet are pierced. And then in verse 18, David wrote, My clothing they've divided by casting lots. That's King David setting up a type, a model of what the Davidic king would be like. And here it is happening to Jesus. Now, be careful with this. It's not that that never happened to anybody else. That's pretty common, actually. In in fact, they probably threw dice to divide the other guy's clothing, too. It, It was a common thing. The point is not that it happened to David and it didn't happen to anybody else ever until it happened to Jesus. That's not the point. The point is that in it happening to David, it sets up a pattern. That also happened to Jesus. And if you read that psalm, that Davidic psalm, you begin to think, that looks kind of like a crucifixion. David abandoned. David surrounded by evildoers while his hands and feet are pierced. David's clothing taken away and divided up by casting of lots. That's kind of interesting. And that happened to Jesus. By itself, that's not a strong argument. Any one of these little arguments by themselves are not a strong argument, but they, they're kind of working like the little threads in Gulliver's Travels. Remember how Gulliver's tr- tied down by all the little Putian's threads? You know that story? Little threads. One of them, no problem. A couple of them, no problem. Thousands of them begin to hold you down. That's what John is doing, piling on little connections to the Old Testament here. And eventually you read it and you say, hmm, that's kind of interesting. Huh, how about that? Well, on and on and on. And the more things that get tied to Jesus, the more you say, the Old Testament's picture of the Messiah is connecting to Jesus. That's interesting. That's how John's working here. That's the pattern he's beginning to establish. They cast lots to fulfill the Scripture. And then after we learn how how it is that Mary came to live with John later in life, we get another fulfillment statement. Verse 28. Knowing that all was finished, knowing that it's at the end here, Jesus now initiates something and he says, I'm thirsty. Tying to Psalm 69. And they hold up for him on, on a hyssop branch, a sponge filled with sour wine. Psalm 69 is another key Davidic psalm. You go read that psalm, and it's David, and it sure sounds a lot like Jesus. You read in Psalm 69, verse 9, where he says, Zeal for your house consumes me. That's David. Have we seen that mapped onto Jesus yet? Yes, in John 2 we saw it. When he cleans out the temple, John quotes that to say, Look, this is how Jesus acted. Zeal for his house consumed Jesus. Psalm 69. But the psalm also says, verse 3, my throat is parched. And verse 21, for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. More connections. Psalm 69 is now laid over top of Jesus. When he'd taken the sour wine, he says, it's finished. Bows his head and gives up his soul. Even in death, John pictures him as the one making the decision to die. Well, 
because it's late on the Friday afternoon, right before the special Sabbath of Passover, the Jews are especially concerned to get the victims down off the cross. See, anybody hung on a cross is cursed by God, and to have men hanging on the cross cursed by God would curse the whole land. And during this high holiday of the Passover, they didn't want that to happen. So they go and ask Pilate to to speed things up a little bit. And Pilate doesn't want to irritate the whole population. He might want to irritate the leaders, but not the whole population by defiling this holiday. And so he agrees. And he orders the soldiers to take their iron mallets and go smash the legs of the victims. In addition to the shock and the blood loss, this would render them unable to push themselves up to breathe. And so they're, they're going to suffocate and, and die pretty quickly. So they go and they break the legs of the other two guys, but they come to Jesus and what do you know? He's already dead. What an interesting coincidence. But John, so that we're sure that we don't think this is a coincidence, John explicitly points out, verse 36, this took place to fulfill the Scriptures. And the Scripture that he has in mind is critical for our, our understanding of what Jesus is supposed to be. What Scriptures were fulfilled by his legs not being broken? Exodus 12 and Numbers 9. Texts that talk about the Passover lamb. How no bone in the Passover lamb is to be broken. Fulfilled there at Jesus. Get the implications here. What John is saying is that in the Old Testament, those passages that everybody thinks are about the Passover lamb are actually about Jesus. They forbid, in, in being stated, they forbid the bones of the Passover lamb to be broken. And so the soldiers can't break them because they are fulfilling the Scripture. Now, not in their minds. In their minds, he's already dead. Why bother? But what John is saying is that there's actually another level there. God's Word says you can't break the bones of the Passover lamb. Jesus is a Passover lamb. Therefore, you can't break his bones. And they fulfilled another Scripture as well. To make sure that he was dead, they ran him through with a spear. Blood and water came out of his side. I saw it with my own eyes, says John. It happened. His body fluids evidently already breaking down. His chest cavity, they puncture it, they run out. Blood and water separated. And they looked on him whom they had pierced. That's Zechariah 12. The section of Zechariah where the Lord is describing how he would one day bring salvation to Israel. And they will look on me, it says. Get the pronouns here. And they will look on me on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. On me, on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. And then a couple verses later, the beginning of chapter 13, and on that day, a fount of blessing will be opened up. A fount of blessing for cleansing of sin and uncleanness. Zechariah 12, fulfilled right here. More connections to the Old Testament. And after all the events at the cross are done, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, come and make sure that Jesus gets a proper burial. Actually, more than a proper burial, a royal burial. They use an extraordinate amount of spices. They bury him in a brand new tomb in a garden. You're supposed to read that and think, wealthy tomb, nice, clean, new. Another reference to the Old Testament, Isaiah 53, verse 9. He was numbered among the rich in his death. These two guys, they have mixed character. The fear of man is never looked on kindly in the book of John. And last time we saw Nicodemus, he didn't look that good. 
but at least they take half a, half a step forward here now after they've looked on the one who's been pierced. And that's the story. You can tell the story of the cross in a bunch of different ways. And the gospel writers all do. They emphasize different things. They highlight suffering in, in one case, or, or the, the, the great wrong and injustice of it in another case. But John tells this story. In a way, it, it's almost like he keeps breaking the rhythm. He tells the story in a way that makes clear, I'm not just telling the story. The Bible has always been telling the story. Your Bible, the Old Testament, has always been telling the story. He references all three sections of the Old Testament. The Jewish mind divided the scriptures into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writing. And he references all three of them in describing the cross. He's lifting this up in front of us and tying it back. Look at this one crucified. Look at Jesus pierced according to plan. This has always been God's agenda. That's the main point here. That's, that's what John is getting at. This was a plan to do something. And it happened just like he said it would. So the main point there, look at Christ pierced according to plan. I'm going to divide that into two halves now. In the remainder of our time, I'm going to look at those two parts of that statement, starting with the second half of it. John has marked this story with a little bit of grammar that highlights something. Let me give you the, the first overarching point here, and, and then I'll explain a little bit. The cross completes the plan of God. The cross completes a plan. There always has been a plan, and at the cross, it's finished. It's completed. All those fulfillment statements are pointing to it, and also especially verses 28 to 30 are making this point. They're zeroing in on the cross. It says the same word there three times, finished. Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to finish the Scripture, it is finished. Creates, when you read it, it creates this repetition that helps to underline the word finished in our minds. We notice it. Something's been finished. Well, what? What's been finished? Well, the plan of God to reclaim for himself a people. To reclaim for himself a people in an environment that's cleansed of all sin. That's wiped clean, renewed, reclaimed, restored. That plan of God has been the agenda that he's been on for forever, since page three of the Bible. That's what he's been after. From the very beginning, this place right here, this earth, it was a beautiful place. It was glorious. It was, it was clean. A place of, of intimacy between people, intimacy between people and God, fulfillment of heart, meaning, and work. That's what life was like here. And in one act of rebellion, the whole thing was ruined. Adam and Eve sinned against God and destroyed it. And curse and wrath from God replaced blessing and joy. And from that moment, the question has been, can this be fixed? Can it be restored? Not by us. We've tried for thousands of years. It's not working. We are the problem. We're not fixing it. The Bible says that you and I were spiritually dead. And dead men don't heal themselves. Never. They don't partially heal themselves. 
They don't heal themselves like up to a certain point and then look for God to do the rest after they've done all they can. It doesn't happen. If it's going to get fixed, it has to be by God himself. Can that happen? And thankfully, what's impossible with man is possible with God. He has a plan to bring back to life spiritually dead people. To cleanse his world again. To make peace. Remove the effects of the curse. And he reveals it bit by bit by bit throughout history, throughout the Old Testament. Showing the way, showing a need, hinting at the answer. I kind of think of it like a a connect the dots picture. You hold a connect the dots picture and you know it's something. And you try to figure out what it is. There are a collection of dots over here that might connect in certain ways and there's a space and another set over here. But what is it? I can't quite figure it out. What's going on? What's the picture there? You look back all across time, throughout the centuries, and the law holds up a way to life. Follow me and find life, the law says. And the law also holds up sacrifices offered on countless altars because we don't follow the law. And every one of those sacrifices are all saying to you, it's not yet finished. The carcass of the bull, as it goes up in smoke, preaches to you. Every lamb slain at every Passover is crying out, not quite. You'll be back next year doing this all over again. I don't quite make up for the problem. I don't quite solve it. Keep looking. The blood of bulls and goats is unable to wash away sin. Neither is my good behavior. Neither is trying to keep the law. Neither is earnest attempt to reform or shape up. None of it is sufficient. In fact, trusting in any of it condemns you. And that's our predicament. We're stuck with pointers showing us where life would be, showing us how far we fall short of that, hinting at some solution out there that's permanent. But we're still looking and looking and looking and looking until one day we look up and there is a pierced lamb. The final pierced lamb, who is also the I am. We look on him, on him whom we have pierced. He's the Lord in flesh, he's the king, and he's the lamb. He hangs there from the cross then, and in love says to you, Here, here alone, it's all finished, it's done, mission accomplished. It's not bravado in Jesus' case. It's truth. It's finished right here. The centuries of looking, of not quite finding it, of not measuring up, of not having the sacrifice that removes it all. Here, it's done. At this cross. At this cross only. Here you can find sufficient payment for sin if... You wash in that fount that opens up out of his side. If you trust it alone. So come and wash in it. Bathe in it. Drink up the water of life. Think of this. Sin's dark hold on you. It's broken. God's wrath removed. Destruction and doom ended actually because of the cross. 
You know that. In a lot of ways, I'm preaching to the choir here, and I realize that. You could tell this story in your sleep. Good. Do you tell the story in your sleep? Do you tell the story in your waking hours? Again and again and again and again to yourself? You need to sing this out. You need to shout this to your own heart over and over again and to one another over and over again. The greatest problem that you will ever face, ever, has been dealt with once and for all. Do you believe that? Do you remind yourself of that? Or is it a fact you've left on the table back there somewhere where you move on through life? You can't walk away from the cross. You have to walk to the cross and live there regularly, constantly. The wrath of God was falling on you like a tidal wave, and Christ stepped in between and absorbed it all. And what you receive from Him is righteousness. And now you stand in grace, forgiven, welcomed into the presence of God, no longer fearing curse and wrath and death and destruction. Really? What other kind of troubles do you have? Really? Ah, there's a lot of blood, toil, sweat, and tears left. Sure. But it's over. Really? begins to move us towards our second point. This has always been the plan of God to pierce the sun and to end this problem. To make peace with people. To make peace between people. To cleanse the world. Always been His plan. But that would be the case if you'd never heard of it or not. Or not. If you'd heard of it or not. You need to respond to that and respond by believing, by looking, by trusting, by hoping. Here's the second half of that statement. Look, believe, and live. I don't mean live physically, humanly. You are all all obviously alive. I mean live spiritually. Look, believe, and live spiritually. Life is meant to be lived like this enthralled with something. The cross right there in front of you, this this great king consuming your mind, moving in, renewing you in here, transforming you then. When that happens, the rest of what the world offers you will pale in comparison. Problem is, we don't live like that. We don't. All of us here, whether you're a Christian or not, we all face the same problem to different degrees, but it's the same problem. We're supposed to live with the cross right here, controlling our thinking, controlling our looking, but we don't. It's more off to the side somewhere. If you're not a Christian this morning, you may very well have understood everything that I just said. You may have heard it a hundred times before already, and it's really clear. It's obvious. But you don't believe it yet means you don't see it. You don't really believe that you're a sinner. Really. Or if you do, that your sin's really all that bad. That God's really all that angry with it. That God really punishes absolutely. No, No grading on a curve. 
that it's permanent and absolute. You don't really believe that. That your sin separates you from God and invites His wrath. That's, I hear that, but nah. And you may not even really care about that because God does not appear to be really that satisfying of a being. More of a, of a rules guy with a lot of requirements, and stipulations, and a really heavy hand when you break them. Why would I want a God like that? You don't really believe that He's what your heart was made for. And when you join to Him, you find peace and rest. You may get everything that I'm saying, but you don't really believe. And because you don't believe, you don't live. This passage calls you, look at this one pierced. If sin was not that bad, why would God kill His Son? If there was some other way to deal with it, surely He would have taken that. Surely He would welcome you in if being good enough was good enough. Believe. May God give grace to you to open your eyes but you must evaluate this and change your mind. Believe. It's a requirement. He's a king. You must kneel to him. And it's a blessing. When you kneel to him, you find life. You find that the struggle has been dealt with and it is over. And you live. Won't you believe in him? Won't you turn to Him, repent, and come to Him and lay down your life at His feet? He'll give it back to you in a new and living, fresh, alive, joyful way. May God give each of us eyes to see and believe. Christians here too. We have the same problem. It's a different expression of the same problem. We struggle with unbelief too. We've moved a step further than, than the person who's not yet a Christian. We say, see the one who's been pierced? I see him. I get it. I believe. I trust you, Jesus. Thank God you've paid for my sin. Now let me go live my life. Maybe not quite that crassly or that deliberately, but that's what we do. We look, and then we walk away. That has to change. <laughs> We're all tempted towards that. We all do that. And that has to change. That's the process of sanctification. That changing in your life. Let me try to describe what that might look like. How it happens is an act of grace in your life and you using the ordinary means. We've talked about that a bunch. But let me describe what that might look like in your life. Take just a situation at work maybe. Things at your business or at your job or whatever aren't going very well. Maybe you're being pressured to, to work a little harder, a little more efficiently, a little more profitably, and you go to a meeting and you come out of that and you think, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And if right then you will stop and live in front of the cross, here's what happens inside of you. The, what am I going to do, becomes, okay. You can sleep the sleep or live the life of the saved and thankful. You can right there. You reflect. 
here's the reality of my work situation. Here's the reality of my job. Yes, that's all true. Probably even worse than I know. And over here is the reality of the cross. And that's still true. My worst problems have been dealt with. This is nothing by comparison. He's still the king. He's still enthroned. He still holds the future in his hands. These details included. He still looks on me in grace. He still does only good to me. He still has claimed me as his own and is obligated to meet my needs. He still welcomes me into his presence to pray, lay out my heart in front of him. He still promises to be my joy, to be my treasure, to give me life despite the circumstances. That's all still true. I trust you, Jesus. I'm confused, but I trust you. Why? Because I feel good? No. I feel pressured. But because I look at the cross and know that you have done something decisive that has changed the world, that has rendered you on my side, obligated to sustain me. And so I'm going to trust you. And sleep the sleep of the saved, get up tomorrow morning and do the best job I can at work. Not in a panic, but at peace. Take another situation. You do this in all of life, but think about kids. If you don't have kids, I'm sorry here, but many of us have kids. Think about your kids. Imagine a situation where you're worried about them. Hard to imagine, I know. You're worried about them because of something crazy they're doing or something evil that they're doing, because of some problem they're going through, because of some disease that they have, something. You're worried about them. And as you think about that, and it stews inside of you. Maybe you argue with them. Maybe you try to manipulate them. Maybe you just fret and fret and fret and fret. Any number of things you could do. But... If you pull up the cross in front of your mind, what happens? Whew. I look at the cross, and Jesus, I see you there, and you have claimed this world and have given proof that you will fix it one day. It all works out in the end. You are God. You own me. You own my kids. They're actually not my kids primarily. They belong to you. I put them in your hands. I know that you only deal with me in good because you've placed me in grace. I know that. Now give me wisdom as to what I should do and what I should say. Hear my prayers that you've, you've given me access to you now because of the cross. Hear my prayers. Guide me. Give me wisdom. And you sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful. You get up the next day and do the best you can with your kids, trusting. The cross is not a promise that everything will work out like you want it to. The cross is a promise that everything will work out right and for good. The cross is a promise that God is at your side, on your side. That if he has given you Christ, will he not along with him also give you all things? All good things. You're meant to look at the cross and embrace it and live there. 
Know that this has always been God's plan. This is how God intended to deal with sin. And he has done it. And will do it more and more and more until everything is wiped clean. See Christ. Embrace the cross and live. Let me pray. Lord, for most of us here this morning, this is really old news. And because it's really old news, we run a danger of it no longer seeming like good news. And I pray, God, move in our hearts and move us with it. Assure us of your grace. Change us so that we think Christ-centeredly and cross-centeredly. Give hope to us, Lord, amidst trouble. Help us to sleep and to live as saved and thankful people, knowing that you'll meet us with grace tomorrow because of the cross. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.